All right. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. We didn't do the intro here. We'll just jump kind of right into it. But I'm sitting down. Folks may recognize the face, Corey Reese. He's been on the podcast at least two times before. Uh, we talked about uh, faith crises in one episode. And we also talked about you and uh, running early on in the Almost Awakened podcast. So uh, let's jump into it. I'll give you a moment to briefly introduce yourself. Uh, I will say Corey's a good friend of mine, and uh, he's a therapist down here in Southern Utah. Um, so if you'll maybe plug you, and then we'll talk about kind of the topic we're going to go into today. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Bill. Um, yeah, I'm a therapist here in Southern Utah, and... Ever since I went through a faith transition about five years ago, um, I I kind of went through all the things and the the grief process and depression and stuff and and like working through all of that and coming out the other side, I I just have shifted my focus in therapy to wanting to help others navigate that process of faith transition stuff and just knowing that it impacts every every aspect of life and there's there's a lot to untangle and for a lot of people they can navigate that kind of on their own or maybe with a spouse or with friends and for some people maybe they don't have all those resources and so in those situations sometimes therapy can be helpful and um, so I, I just like to really lean into that. And I, I think there's a lot of value that can come from examining all that stuff. So yeah, that's kind of been my focus for the last few years. Sweet, sweet. And you and I uh, are part of uh, a book club and I'll just put up on the screen here so folks can see it. So this was the book that we did and this was our first uh, conversation in this particular book club. And this was the book that was picked and um, there are probably 10 of us or so and the conversation was great. The conversation was so helpful to me understanding the book. And so today, folks, we're going to talk about IFS or internal family systems as a model of therapy. And uh, this book, I think, has been really helpful to folks in that friend group that are part of that book club. And I just, you know, for full disclosure, I just started IFS therapy a week ago and have my second appointment actually today at four o'clock. And I'm really excited because I'm always one who's trying to figure out how, why I do what I do and why the world does what it does and try to get at it better of how I can show up in a healthier, more responsible way as a human being. And uh, when this book was suggested, I, I thought, oh, like, okay, no bad parts. Uh, no part of us is bad. Simple enough. Okay. And as I'm reading the book, I realized that as the therapist, the author, uh, Richard Schwartz, Dick Schwartz, as he is uh, framing the book, there's a narrator that does it on Audible, but then he comes in and actually does the uh, the exercises of of therapy. And as he was having these conversations, and I'm sorry, this will go a little long as I try to set this up, but, but in these conversations where he's sitting down with a client, and that client is uh, that client is going into their past, their history, and having conversations in their head with these parts of themselves, and we'll get into what all this means. I, I could tell that they were doing real work, like getting things tackled that the, the whole self of us, that's the observer behind the eyes watching the world unfold in front of us. There, there are parts of us that are thinking thoughts and doing actions that are 
conscious observer self isn't even aware of the motivations behind. And so as they were having these conversations in the book, you could see these clients going into real work with their parts about the parts that protect themselves, the parts that have had to put distance away from the world because they felt too much shame or fear. Uh, the All these little facets of the ego and it, and it kind of takes the ego and splits it up into multiple personalities, right? And he even says like multiple personality disorder is when someone's uh, life is so traumatic that these parts have to splinter off even further than they are already, but they are already there. Um, maybe talk for a moment about the book generally, Corey, and your thoughts, and and then we can jump into maybe trying to explain what it is this therapy is trying to get at, and then we can talk kind of some practical use of like the three questions, for instance, that, mm-hmm. that I thought was a big deal in our conversation. But anyway, any thoughts of yeah. yours on the book? Yeah, so over the last 20 or 30 years, there have been a couple pretty big shifts in the therapy world. EMDR, the eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing, that is, that's just been like a real game changer in the therapy world, super helpful for processing trauma and uh, among uh, so many other things. But this internal family system stuff, the IFS has, in my mind, been the other big shift. And I had heard lots of people talking about it. And I'm in a bunch of therapist Facebook groups, and I'm in a specifically a religious trauma um, therapy Facebook group. And um, I was just curious one day as I was preparing for a different presentation, I, I posted in that group what what modalities people use most often when working with religious trauma. And IFS came up as the predominant one. And I just totally see why. Um, I, I'm a late, I'm a latecomer to IFS. I, I discovered this book, No Bad Parts, a couple of years ago, after hearing so many people talk about it, I didn't even know what it was. And so I listened to that book and it blew my damn mind. I, it, it is just such a radical way of thinking. And yet it makes so much sense. So basically his idea, exactly like you said, is that we all have multiple personalities, but not in the not in the psychotic way. Like we just have all these different parts. So he came about it because he was doing therapy with people struggling with eating disorders and he could hear their language. And they were, they were saying things like, well, part of me just feels this drive to um, starve myself. And and then part of me, after I, after I starve myself, I, I get so, I get so mad. I'm like this disappointed. And then I go, um, binge and purge. And, and there's this part of me that feels some relief in doing that. But then part of me, like just is so super critical. And, and he just started hearing about these different parts in people and, and that clicked with him and resonated. And, and essentially he drew this out to bigger picture beyond eating disorder stuff to look at how we all have different parts. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a party coming up on Friday night and, and Friday afternoon rolls around and you're like, Oh man, part of me is so psyched to go hang out with my friends. And, and part of me is just, I just want to crawl into bed. I am so tired and exhausted from the work week. That's, that's parts work. That's, 
that's just recognizing different parts. And once you start recognizing that language, it's like you see something that you can't unsee. And so now, for better or worse, every time I'm having a conversation with someone and they're like, yeah, I don't know, part of me just isn't sure if this is what I want to do. I I just have to smile. Like they're talking IFS language and don't even know it. Yeah. And in some of these exercises, um, maybe if I just explain. So the therapist sits down with the person and they start talking about the parts of you that are managing your life to keep the chaos out and protecting you when the chaos is inevitable or in your face. And there's those parts and those are called the protectors and the, mm -hmm. the ones that kind of manage your life or the managers and the, and we could put up actually on the screen. Let me put this up. Um, let's use this one. So the, the managers are the parts of you that keep your life flowing along, trying to keep the chaos out. They keep everything in order and kind of keep you from, tripping over the, the mess of trauma that is behind you. And then the firefighters are there when the moment that's in front of you triggers you in such a way that you are, that your insides are perceiving this is very similar to some traumatic moment in the past. And your firefighters are there to step in immediately. And these are your defense mechanisms. These are the, the ways in which you create safety, manipulate the world around you. And then your exiles are these, is this healthy part of you that because it felt shame or fear, it has stepped back and allowed the managers and the firefighters to step in front and be the middlemen um, to protect you. And that's why the, that's why the managers and firefighters are called the protectors. And so when uh, the author, when, when Dick Schwartz, when he sits down with a client, he'll go over, he'll, he'll get them to, you know, talk about the ways in which they, their managers and their firefighters are uh, interacting in their world. And then he'll, he, through therapy, he'll ask the client to talk to their managers and their firefighters in a way that feels really safe to them. And again, he talks to them as if they are separate, as if they are their own people. And he talks to the managers and firefighters and gets their permission for them to step back. Like, hey, I see what you're doing. You're protecting me. Thank you. That's really helpful, but it's not. And I'm wondering if maybe you'll step back for a moment and not do your thing and let me talk to this other part of me. And, and so getting the managers and the firefighters to step back, having a chance to then talk to the exiled parts of you, repair all that's there from childhood trauma and all the other horrible things that happened to every one of us being part of being a human and part of humanity. And then once, once the repair has happened with the exiles, inviting the managers and the firefighters back in and having them see that the exile has had repair done. And, and this is insane, right? It and is insane. It is. And then, um, and then inviting the managers and firefighters that they no longer have to show up the way they do. And because they now have a lot more free time on their hands, what would they rather be doing? And then giving the conscious slash subconscious of every one of us the chance as these other personalities to then 
these person again, this is separate from me. It, it's so weird because he'll go into these conversations and he will talk to his client and ask them to talk to these parts and ask the parts, how old am I? And the parts inevitably think you are younger than you are, but you don't know that they know that's the age you are. Like that's what they come up with. Mm-hmm. It, it's this crazy thing. I'll, I'll just go off on a facet, another tangent. When you dream, Corey, you dream, right? You dream about people. There's people in your dreams, mm-hmm. but you never take the consciousness of the other people in your dream. You're always you, but you're right. the one who creates the other characters. So in theory, couldn't you take their consciousness and in theory, you say, like, like, yeah, but you never do. There are parts yeah. of you that you don't exactly have awareness of. And as these exiles get repair and healing, the other parts, the managers and firefighters, are notified of how old the exiled parts of you are. Mm-hmm. And each of these moments are attached to some trauma in your past. And then the managers and firefighters, once they see all this healings happened, they now get to reassign themselves other tasks that are actually healthy and beneficial to you. Cause I think what they do is in a way beneficial to you. Sure. It's an, it's an unhealthy beneficial. It, it, exactly. Exactly. Their, their goal is to protect you. Yeah. So it's, I guess so, what are your thoughts here? Okay. I, I love all of this. And, and I told one of our friends who was at book club, I, I think you might need to shove a sock in my mouth because I am just so all over this. I love it. I feel like it's transformative and I, you're going to have a hard time shutting me up. So let me, I guess I I love the, the different parts and how he separates them, the managers, the firefighters, exiles. It makes, it makes sense. What I worry about with internal family systems, the, the, the one thing I struggle a little bit with is I think differentiating and recognizing recognizing those is important, but I think my fear is that it can feel too confusing and, and turn people off. And mm-hmm. so I think maybe, is it okay if I just throw out an example that I, mm-hmm. I experienced that kind of like where I, I saw these different parts. So I can't even remember what, what it was about but a few months ago me and my wife mel were in a disagreement it was some obviously something dumb because i can't even remember and 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 i was i was noticing myself feeling frustrated during this disagreement and and i i noticed so i just was like okay i'm gonna try this i'm gonna try this ifs stuff so i just paused for a second and like tried to step back from the situation be like okay what what parts am i noticing right now so a part of me is angry. I'm I'm frustrated that that we're having this fight. Um, part of me feels sad because I don't I don't like to be feeling this way with my wife. Um, part of me is feeling defensive. Um, that that part is feeling unseen and unheard, and and that defensiveness is like I listen. I I want you to. You're not you're not hearing me and so um let's see part of me um i'm sure part of me felt kind of lonely as i'm trying to navigate this so i'm seeing all these different parts and i'm like okay this this part of me that um is feeling defensive and needing to justify um that part 
it's it's trying to it's trying to protect me it's trying to help me because it's it's not feeling seen and heard so as the title of his book says that's not a bad part um it it has good intentions but in that moment it was not it was not enabling me to find some resolution in that disagreement and so just like you said it sounds crazy but you can talk to these parts and I'll almost like reassure them like you're they're one of your kids and and just so so I like internally said okay thank you defensiveness I really appreciate you trying to help me right now while I'm trying to work this out would you mind just standing to the side for for 10 minutes and and it's okay like I got you I I'll, I'll work through it and and you can come back like I'm not kicking you out you can come back but for 10 minutes will you just go stand over there and can you imagine the shift that happens in that disagreement in that conversation if I can set defensiveness and justification to the side for a minute suddenly I can be like okay I I see what you mean I I see where you're coming from it doesn't like I I can still have all my other parts like I still have my truth. Maybe it's different than hers, but at least to be able to set the defensiveness down and, and get a better idea of where she's coming from, it was so powerful. So in that example, so, so that defensiveness is like a manager. It's, it's trying to protect that part that is, is feeling hurt and, and sad. So where it would go to like a firefighter would be like, if I, suddenly start yelling and and throwing things and and that's like an extreme reaction but um it it's it's like trying to protect that part of me so yeah i just love what he gets at with that idea that there's no bad parts i mean if you think of something like depression or anxiety anyone experiencing anything like that would say that is a bad part i do not want i don't i do not want to feel that way like help me fix this make it go away and the ifs model is like no no don't don't make it go away um if you if you push it away and try to ignore it and and pretend it's not there it's like uh it's like a crying child like it if you if you've got your kid crying and you just turn your back and walk away, is it going to make the kid stop crying? No, it's it's going to make him scream louder. And so his idea, which I I see, is these parts are the same way. Like if we ignore them and try to push them away, they're going to scream louder. They're trying to get our attention. So um, yeah, they're they're trying to help us. Yeah, and, and you know when I. A lot of my inner work over the last five years has been centered around kind of uh, a secular Buddhism. And and the goal has been to uh, learn that, look, the world is just happening. And yes, parts of it are feel enjoyable and parts of it feel unenjoyable. And it's very natural for the human being to want to cling to things that feel good and to push away things that feel bad. So grasping and distancing. And, and Buddhism is there to teach us just to sit with it. Just be present as the world is unfolding in front of you. And when you're present and holding space for all of that, you tend to show up as a better, healthier version of yourself. But this seems to go another step further. 
Um, and it seems to take that same principle and say, yeah, but rather than just sit with it and go like, well, that's the way it is. This moment just sucks, but I'm just going to hold it as a present moment in at this time, right? Instead, it's like, no, no, no. Like, let's go in and see why parts of you think stuff sucks right now. And let's right. ask it and let's see why, what does it say? And, and what does it want to do? What does it want to do to change your environment? And why does it want to do that? And, and, and as you're pointing out, I mean, to ask permission of your parts to step aside for a moment while also validating, like, look, I see what you're doing. I appreciate it. It has served me so many times before to protect me. Thank you. I promise we won't, we won't disregard you. When, when we come back to you, we will address what it is you're doing and make space for, you know, you, this part of you to continue to value the things it values because it has its own value system. Mm -hmm. And, and so as you send it away and you fix some things without it, and then it comes back and you go like, look, see, see, I can handle this. I'm, I'm not nine years old anymore. When my uncle molested me, Right. I, I'm, I'm 45 years old and I can, I can handle tough situations. Yeah. So now that you can see that, now, what ways could you protect me that would be a healthier way that doesn't have me hyperventilating and causing anxiety to the people around me, right? Mm -hmm. Right. It, yeah, so if insane. you think about, yeah, so the, the, the idea of these parts forgetting how old we are, again, this, this just sounds so crazy until you put it into action, but these these defenses these ways of trying to protect you they came about for a reason so say you're molested at age 5 and and you these parts of you were like okay i need to i need to protect you i'm going to i'm going to keep people at a distance i'm going to whatever um and and those those defense mechanisms come about for a reason but I, I loved this example. They talked about how um, uh, like a, a mama bear trying to defend her cub. It, when she's doing that, she's facing outward. She's not looking at the cub. It, that's what these parts are doing. Like they're, they, they take on these ways of managing when we're four, five, six, seven, eight, and forget that now we're grown adults with more hopefully more coping strategies and skills and, and, but, but they forget that. And so they just do what they've always been doing. And it's, it, it is like, you really do have to educate them. Like, thank you. What, what you did helped get me to this point. And now I, I have other strategies. And so would you like to move into serving a different role? And so what they find, and, and I see this too, is that when you check in with those parts, those parts are tired. Like they've been working really hard. And if, if you, if they knew you were safe, would they want to switch into a different role? And so um, the author, Dick Schwartz, he talks about how he used to have this inner critic that was just yelling constantly. And, and he did a lot of his own work and, and seeing what, what was behind that critic and how it was trying to help him and what it needed from him. And, and eventually like that critic was going all the time, but it was tired and he was able to shift that from that part of him that is always criticizing to being more of like a cheerleader and, and encouraging. 
Yeah, totally. Um, I'm trying to think for some folks who do this, the, the therapy is real. Like what I mean by that is I think people can experience this different ways. Again, I only, I've only had one conversation with my new therapist on IFS Mm -hmm. and I, and I barely understood it going into the book club. I understood it better (laughs) listening to all of you guys um, because some of you are really experiencing this on a real level, but for, for folks who go into IFS therapy, some folks are having literal conversations with the parts of them as their own persons. Uh, I'll use my wife as an example. As she's been sitting with this book and these practices, there is an exiled part of her that is a little girl that sits on her lap and my wife just strokes her hair as she talks to her. Um, And we had a couple of friends who mentioned being able to do that. Mm -hmm. I, I can't do that yet. Mm-hmm. And and the therapist that I'm seeing said some people don't like some people it's more abstract mm-hmm. than that, but that folks are experiencing uh, different things with it. But on some level, they are having conversations with the parts of them and doing real repair work. Um, I was going to put back up on the screen. I'll see if I can get this to work. It was there we go. Um, you know, we talked about managers. They they are proactive resistance, proactive resistance, control, judgment. They run our daily life. Most acceptable part because it's similar to the core self. By the way, as I was talking to my therapist, he was, I thought I was talking to him, right? And he's like, oh, one of your managers just showed up, you know? (laughs) And uh, it's almost like the therapist is inviting you to be crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Like you are really invited to treat these parts of you as separate entities. Mm Mm-hmm. And, but as he engaged me on that level, I started to sense, and, and it continued this morning. I'm, I'm laying in bed. My wife and I are talking about something. Some, it triggered one of us, ended up being sort of a conflict, but nothing super heavy. So it was a conflict. And as we were trying to resolve the conflict, she is stating why she's being triggered. I'm trying to solve the problem, but it's obvious that I'm also protecting parts of myself. And so she and engages the conversation. I engage the conversation. We finally get to a point where because of this book and because of the therapy that I've started, I, I could sense what really was going on for me, which was that there was this young kid, 12 years old or so, who really was innocent and the world was just beautiful and perfect and good. And, and no major thing happened. I didn't encounter some major trauma, but there were a handful of bigger than little things. Mm-hmm. And what they told this young kid was that it's not safe to be you exactly. And, uh, and, and I, from the first therapy session on to the conversation this morning, I can, I can see the managers and the protectors. I can see the little boy they think is me. And they're kind of standing around that little boy and they keep him from having any direct interaction with anything or anyone. Mm -hmm. And the managers often sound like you. They often come across as if they are you. But remember, this goes back to Buddhism, folks. If this sounds insane, in Buddhism, we're taught, like, are you your thoughts? No. Are you your arm? No. Like, if you were just a brain in a vat but couldn't see yourself and panic over that, if you were allowed to communicate, you would sense you're still you. No part of you makes you you. You're just the observer behind the eyes. You're not the thoughts. You're not the ego for sure. 
And so what this does is it really kind of separates the ego into multiple facets and says, you're not your ego. And so as the therapist and I were talking, he's like, oh, there's your managers. Like I can see a few of them. And we started talking about it. I'm like, damn it. He's actually nailing this. <laughs> and um, I would never have thought to engage the world this way. Um, so you've got your managers, you've got your firefighters. They're the automatic reactions. Uh, they attack or create diversions. This is when your ego is really kind of in fight or flight mode. Mm -hmm. um, creates the illusion of stability by numbing and distancing from exiles, pain with distractions. And then it says down here, the exiles hides, rejected, wounded, traumatized parts, wants to be seen, but feels exposed, exposing uh, would be risky and vulnerable. Uh, protectors believe they will destabilize the system. The protectors believe the exiles will destabilize the system. Uh, these the exiles think they're not good enough. They're they're too much. Bad abandonment, dependency, shame. Um, and then there's this idea that you're your core self, and the core self again, the observer, calm, confident, curious. They call these the eight C's: calm, confident, curious, creative. I can't remember what the other ones were. I'll play another slide here that shows all of them. And then they had some other words. Most of them begin with P's, but playful, adventurous, stable. This is like that really healthy, cool, calm, collected, grounded part of you. And we all come into the world so innocent, right? Like we all come into the world thinking you kind of, unless, until bad shit happens, you just don't think bad shit happens. I thought my parents were perfect almost. Uh, and I grew up in a good home for folks who didn't, they, they encountered this trauma much earlier, but I thought my parents were perfect. I thought my aunts and uncles were good. I thought, I thought the world was innocent and then things happened to us. And, you know, uh, Oprah Winfrey, and I forget what Bruce's last name was, but Bruce, uh, I'll think of it. They wrote a book called what happens to us. And it's the same idea. Like something happened to you and the innocent you that came into the world had to figure things out. And this guy takes Dick Schwartz, takes it another level and says, what, what you did was you created individual parts inside that value the world differently than your exiles did. They valued the world differently than your core self does. And they stepped in to create layers of mechanisms to protect you from having to deal with the hard shit you dealt with back then when bad shit happened to you. Um, any thoughts there about any of that? Yeah. Um, I had read the book, the untethered soul before I ever there. came across IFS and, and it, it reminds me a lot of that core self where he talks about there's this self, like the observer, the person who can sit back and see everything. And, and I heard one podcast where they talked about IFS and, and she, she said, it's your core self is kind of like Oprah at the head of the table. Like, like Oprah is just wise, all knowing, <laughs> like she's going to listen to, to all of the other people sitting at the table. She's going to take it in, but ultimately she's, she's, she's going to do what she needs to do to take care of things. And, um, I, I loved, I loved that perspective of just, um, yeah, like your your core self, your true self, it it's there. You can feel it when you when you dig underneath some of this other stuff. Um, yeah, just the those those seas, the calmness, curiosity, clarity, compassion, confidence, 
courage, creativity, connectedness. Um, I, I've heard people say like, how do you know when one of your, how do you find parts? Like, how do you, how do you know when your one of your parts is talking? And it's almost like, um, well, if you're not feeling those things, then it's, it's probably a part. Yeah. Yeah. You, you came up with, so one of the things the book explained clearly, and I, I noticed a little bit of this this morning when I was sensing an exile and talking to my wife about what the protectors were doing and why I can't enter a really hard conversation where I, I have some accountability for the thing that happened that hurt her or hurt somebody else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I could sense that it was risky to go talk to the exiles, right? And so the book is really clear that there are practices that everyone can do that gets you talking to your managers and your firefighters and allows you on some level, at least, you know, kind of GI Joe, uh, half, half the, half the solution is to get the managers and firefighters out of the way so that the grounded you can deal with the situation without the panic or the protection of the managers and firefighters. But I could sense it was risky. And the book makes it really clear that if you, you should not go and have the conversations with the exiles themselves without a professional therapist. And I don't, I don't know what that is. I'm hoping at some point in the future that we'll have another conversation on IFS. All I want to do today is just get people excited, have them sense there's this thing they don't know about and maybe go off and read the book themselves and, and start to kind of lean into this. But um, there's some risk involved in you going to talk to the exiles. They, they're they fragile and those conversations really require a professional therapist. Um, but on the surface, like the things we could do and the things they do in the book is they get you having conversations with your managers and firefighters and you, you came up with these three questions that kind of allow people to start to have this conversation and you, and your questions are framed in such a way that I don't have to start off with the belief that these parts are individual personalities. I can tackle it at a more concrete level that I, that my reality makes sense to me in. Right. Mm -hmm. And so let's, let's talk about those for a moment. What are your three questions? Sure. So I actually added a fourth today after, Ooh, I love it. Um, and I, I, I should clarify, I didn't add a fourth. I listened to just, just barely like the most recent episode of the rich roll podcast. He interviewed Dick Schwartz. Like it just barely came out. And so I just finished listening to it today. And mm. um, he mentioned another, another question that I think is just so awesome. Um, yeah. So like for any of you who are interested in stuff, go listen to the rich roll interview with, Richard Schwartz. So, so here's, here's my approach. Whenever I have a part that I'm noticing that is, is coming up. And so maybe it's, maybe it's, uh, um, one of my teenage kids is like on my absolute last nerve and I, I cannot take any more, whatever it is. And an easy, an easy way to figure out a part is when you're feeling something, whether it's like this child, I cannot do this right now. I'm going crazy or feeling super sad or feeling ang angry, whatever. Like anytime you're feeling one of those emotions, here's, here's 
a way to to get to know these different parts. I, I like to think of it as genuinely getting to know this part. And so um, I think the first question that I like to think about is how are you trying to protect me? Right. So it, it, it's just such a, it's such a unique way of thinking. So something like depression. So say part of me is feeling depressed. I, I'm going to ask that part how it's trying to protect me. That just does not make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. But in this book, No Bad Parts, you mentioned that he comes on and works, walks you through some exercises. Normally, when I'm reading or listening to a book um, and there's exercises like that, I just keep it going. I don't, I don't really do them. But this time, I, I'm like, okay, no, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to force myself. So he would ask, what, how is this part trying to protect you? I got nothing. I can't, like nothing is coming to mind. And so I pushed pause on the audiobook and I just decided I'm not going to start it again until I have an answer to this question. And it I'll say I had some huge light bulbs. So like think about um I I was processing this as I was kind of like working through my faith transition stuff and I mentioned I was feeling some depression that I had never felt before. And once my life got turned upside down, suddenly I was feeling that. So to ask that question, how is depression trying to protect me when I just want to be rid of this like yesterday? I hate it. And so I'm just sitting there thinking, I, I don't know. I don't know. And and I finally realized, and and one quick pause here. I love what he says. He's like, when you're asking these questions, don't think about it. Just be quiet and listen. That is super powerful. Because if you, if the thoughts of thinking about it are the managers again, trying to come in and do their thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you, the thought has to come, this will sound weird, but the thought has to come from outside of you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, but okay. So I practiced this. I practice this like, okay, I'm just not going to think. I'm just going to just, just shut up, Corey. Just, just listen. Just listen. And it took a few minutes. And it's like, oh, okay. To be clear, I don't like depression. I don't, I don't like it. I, I don't, I don't want to feel this way. But maybe this is trying to protect me. It's, it's like numbing everything. I'm, I'm just like emotionally dead. And maybe it's keeping me from feeling really hard, painful traumas that like my life is a mess. And, and maybe, maybe it's trying to keep me from feeling even worse. Maybe it's trying to numb me so much that it's keeping me from having suicidal thoughts. I don't know. Like it, when I, when I think of it that way, that, um, I don't, I don't like it. I wish there was a better way to cope with how I was feeling. But, but if, if I can see that that depressed part of me is trying to protect me, it, then how can you, how can you be mad at that part? It, it's, it's like, it suddenly brings in self-compassion. Like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so sorry you're feeling this way. I, that, that's gotta be a heavy 
burden to carry. I'm I'm sorry. I I appreciate that. I, I appreciate you trying to help me. It 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 works in that self-compassion that I think is so lacking in people's lives. I think in general, people are just not good at self-compassion. But if you can look at it from that angle, how how can you not feel some compassion? So yeah. go ahead. I was just gonna comment, which is um when I go back to the younger me, the younger me is extremely sentimental and emotional to the point where I remember as a kid going to a funeral, my cousin, his parents had gotten divorced. My, my dad's brother, his, my cousin and his, uh, his parents got divorced. His mom remarried his, uh, mom's new husband. Uh, his dad is still alive, but he has really bad health. I don't know him. I've, I've met him like three times and we never talked or anything. It's just an old guy who came around once in a while, but he's my cousin's like step grandpa, right? Just, he's nothing in relationship. I don't mean he's nothing, but he's nothing in relationship. He dies and I go to the funeral and I find myself bawling, not because of some weird, like, oh, death is horrible. It was like, as a little kid, I could comprehend what someone who cares about another human being has to deal with when they lose them. And I, and the magnitude of that was felt like some, some level there was real empathy as a little kid. And I could sense, you know, I could go through an entire box of tissues and just cry all day. I cried for hours at this funeral and afterward. Cause I really was in my head going like, man, this is awful. Like this guy just lost his dad. Um, so I came up with managers and firefighters who think they're protecting me by not letting me have to carry the weight of that immense emotional experience. Yeah. But, but now those managers and firefighters are keeping me from human connection with my wife or my children. Mm -hmm. And they think they're protecting me but they're actually keeping me from experiencing the human connection and healthy, responsible behavior that I want. Exactly. And exactly. so, um, I don't know what to add, but when you were talking about depression and how, how does it protect you? Mm -hmm. What is depression doing? I can, I can easily look at my managers and firefighters and go, Oh, you're protecting me. You think you're protecting me from having to experience the, because if, by the way, when I have really big moments of emotion, my extremities, I feel numbness. Um, I sort of feel like I'm either going to have a health event or I'm going to have a panic attack. Yeah. And I don't know what's going to happen. So my managers and protectors say, let's not do that. I'm going to have to lean into here what that's covering up. But to recognize, like, what are they protecting me from? They're protecting me in their mind. They're protecting this little kid from having a health event or a panic attack. Yeah. They're doing what they think is their job. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to, I wanted to yeah. say another experience so that people could relate in different ways to what you were saying and, and the story that I added. Yeah. I think anyway, that's helpful. I think, I think the more examples to help this make sense, the, the better. Yeah. So the, the next question that, um, that I, I was reminded of today as I was listening to this podcast, which I think is such a profound question 
okay, you are, you are talking to this part. What are you afraid would happen if you stopped doing what you're doing? That yeah. is, that is deep. So well, you're telling, right. You're asking the protector. What would, what would happen to you if you stop standing in the way between my, my grounded core self and the exiled parts of me that felt shame and fear? Yeah. What would happen? Yeah. Right. So maybe, maybe the answer, if you're talking to that part of you, that's depressed, maybe, maybe that part is going to say, okay, listen, if I let you feel everything that's underneath there, if I, if I let you check in with your feelings, it, you're, it's going to be overwhelming. You, it's too much. You, you can't do it. And so, um, I'm afraid that you will collapse. You, you will crumble. And, and then maybe it's like trying to reassure that part. Like I, I get it. And, and maybe, maybe based on the past, that part has a reason to feel that way. And, and so maybe it's like reassuring that part. I know, I know I've, I've, it, it, that's happened in the past. And right now, thankfully I've got some good friends around me or I'm going to a therapist or whatever, where I'm, I'm a little safer right now. And so, um, I, I get, I get why you're nervous about that. And I just want you to know I, I'm here. Like we got this, I'll work with you. I, I, I want to keep us safe too. Um, so that's, that's the second question. Anything what on would that? happen? What would happen if the protector stopped protecting you? Yeah. Yeah. What, what is the protector afraid would happen? Yeah. What are and you sometimes afraid? That's what, what are you afraid of? Right. And not you and not me. What is you? What are you? What are you? What are you afraid of? Exactly. If you stop protecting me. Yes. Okay. So number yes. two. Yep. Okay. So the third one, what are you trying to tell me? Or what are you trying to teach me? So again, think of that like screaming child that you're ignoring, it's trying to tell you something. It's trying to tell you something. So maybe with depression, it's trying to tell you, Hey, I, I, we can't keep doing it like this. This is not working. I, I need, I need something, something has to shift. So, but if you're just pushing that feeling away or, or not wanting to listen, or you're pretending it's not there, then it's going to stay stuck. So um, I, I think it's so important to listen. Like, what what are you trying to tell me that I'm oblivious to or that I'm ignoring? Yeah, I mean, there could be ways that your subconscious parts are trying to tell you to take better care of yourself. Yes, they could be warning you that you're not, you're, you don't have healthy boundaries in your world, that you're putting yourself in contact with people who are just trampling on you. Right. Um, they could be telling you that you are taking on too much responsibility at work or at home. They could be telling you that, uh, you know, they could be trying to teach you that, look, you, you at this moment, have never indicated to me that you have the ability to protect yourself from the world around you. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it, 
to start asking the parts of you, what are you trying to teach me? Uh, is the gateway because now at this point, I think once you understand what they're trying to do, now you can take opportunities to ask them to stand aside and to talk to the, the more fragile parts of you again with a therapist, but to talk to the more fragile parts of you and to go like, Oh, like, cause now you have insight. You didn't have this before, but now you go into talk to your exiles and you understand why the protector who's standing off to the side for a minute is involved. And so now you get to interact with the exiles knowing what it is that's trying to be accomplished. And now that you are, you have aged, you're not the nine-year-old kid anymore. Mm -hmm. You're not the 12 year old little girl anymore. Now you're the 40 something year old or 50 something year old. You now have this, the awareness and the tools from the therapist who's sitting with you to now go talk to the exiles and go like, Oh, I know, I know the protector was protecting you from this. Let's see if we can now deal with this without the protector being needed. Um, yeah. Big yeah. stuff. Anyway, number three, Good. what are you trying to teach me? Yep. And then the last one I love so much. What do you need from me? Again, just so huge. So maybe that depressed part of you, if you, if you don't think about it, if you just listen to what that part needs, maybe, maybe it needs you to slow down. Maybe it needs you to take some stuff off your plate. Maybe it needs you to um, get more sleep or take better care of yourself or, or I don't know, like what, whatever. Um, but it needs something from you. It needs something. Yeah. Yeah. And um, when you realize you have all these in a sort of competing parts inside you, parts that want to be seen, parts that want to hide the parts that want to be seen. So you don't feel shame or fear. You can, you can start to sense that you really aren't this consistent human being who operates in the world with complete alignment. Instead, you are competing parts all the time. And once you recognize that an eating disorder or a extended depression only represents part of you and it's not all of you, you can begin to go like, oh, like this part of me wants to do things this way, but there are other parts of me that if I gave them more weight, we could show up differently. And I think that's also a really cool facet of this. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's such a radical thing to, instead of noticing these things that we hate and that we want to change, Instead, embracing them, like making friends with them, mm. it's 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 so it's so unique, so different. But um, I'm just I, I have seen so many firsthand examples where um, people who've been coming in here for six eight months they finish listening to this book and they they come and sit on this couch and I'm like. Who are you? What they just, it just opens everything up. They, they can see everything so clearly. It's, mm. it's crazy. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think offhand. Cause you know, my, again, my goal was to get people excited about the book and to kind of give them, because when I read the book, when I read the book, it was so abstract, like, okay, mm -hmm. you're talking to your parts. And I, I sat and tried the exercise. I laid in my mm -hmm. 
my comfortable chair at home and I did what uh, Mr. Schwartz said and nothing came to my head. Nothing. I couldn't, yeah. like nothing was there. And, uh, but what, what helped me to understand it was, you know, nine of my friends sitting around a campfire and, and talking it out, you know, having a conversation about what does this mean? What does it mean if we, if we talk to our parts as if they're people and to hear my wife talk about, you know, holding this little girl of hers and stroking her hair while she reassures her that, you know, that she's grown, she's older now, she doesn't need things to happen the way that they, that they've happened in the past to hear other friends say that, to hear the, the gentleman was talking to uh, in the book, there's one of the exercises. I think the guy's name is Sam. And in one of the exercises, uh, he talks to uh, the protectors, gets them to stand off to the side, then goes and talks to the exile. And it's this young little boy who had lost his dad and horrible things had happened and family, you know, mom had to move with him and his brother and just, just lots of trauma. And as he is asked by the therapist to describe the mood and the, um, what this nine-year-old boy was feeling that's the sexile and him having the chance to go and to reassure the kid. And, and then he brings the protectors back and he notices that the protectors see the boy has had some healing and that he is not what he was five minutes earlier when the protectors were sent away. <laughs> and then they're astonished. Like he's, he's an outside observer watching the protectors who are parts of him as they are astonished learning that this kid has had some healing in the last 10 minutes. Yeah. And then, and then also they're astonished when they hear that the core self is, you know, 52 years old and they thought the core self was still that nine year old little boy. Mm -hmm. And then, and then uh, he reported back on some of the progress that Sam had made and it, it was just life changing. And as you're pointing out, I mean, folks coming in to see you, and in between their last visit and now they're doing IFS mm -hmm. and they're experiencing tremendous amounts of progress. And I sent, I guess what I would want to say here is because you hinted at this in the beginning, maybe say more about this, but IFS seems to be to the point where it is prevalent in therapy mm -hmm. and the results are so positive and, and showing pro progress and, and, and accomplished work. Uh, at, at human beings become uh, becoming more grounded, healthier um, people in, in their worlds. Maybe talk for a moment about how prevalent this is, because I, I think this isn't something people should be like, ah, that's kind of, I listened to that episode today on almost awakened where Bill and Corey yeah. had this conversation on yeah. IFS and like, that sounded cool, but whatever. Uh -huh. Like this, this is the way that therapy is now being done. It really, it really is. So I'll give you an example. Um, something like EMDR, uh, that requires specific, very specific training. So I, I did that training. It's, it's intense. It's extensive. Um, it, it's very uh, prescribed, like a, a set way of doing it. Um, IFS is a little different. So they do have formal training to to learn how to work with it but it's it's not required and it's a good thing it's not required because ifs has taken over the therapy world so much that to get into one of their official trainings it's like a lottery it's like 
people just can't get in to do the official training. So it's like Burning Man, a thousand people apply and one gets right, picked. Yeah. Right. So there, we're just kind of all like implementing it. And, and, and I think having not done the official IFS training myself, I still feel, and, and talking with some of the other therapists that I work with, I still feel like so much of this just makes intuitive sense that um, it, I, it, it really has taken over the, the therapy world because it, it works. It's, it's evidence-based and, and it's, it's changing people's lives. Yeah. So folks, I would, I would highly suggest, um, cause I think, I think every person should see a therapist. We, I think we're finally, it feels like we're finally kind of pushing over. And again, it could be, could be the people, the circles we run around, you know, with, but at least in the circles I run around with, it's become very normalized that if you're seeing a therapist mm-hmm. to the point where we'll sit around uh, a group of friends and everyone just acknowledges up front, like, yeah, we're seeing a therapist. <laughs> um, but folks, I, I would highly suggest uh, the book, No Bad Parts by Richard Schwartz. I would highly and by the way, Corey, if you've got the one podcast you mentioned here, if you'll shoot me a message on Facebook sure. after this, and we'll include that in the show notes, but any others too, if there's anything else, okay. I just looked today on, on the podcast app and there are, there are entire podcasts that their entire theme is around internal family systems. And mm-hmm. they just continue to have conversations with experts talking about how IFS is helpful and, and how it works. One of the things I really want to get into, and I don't have the ability to do that today with you. I need more experience with this. And I think we need uh, a second expert on too that, that sort of knows this territory, but to have some of these conversations modeled so that mm-hmm. people can see what it means to talk to yourself. Yeah. Um, I think that would be super helpful, but in the meantime, folks, before we do that, and we'll do that here sometime in the next month or two. Um, in the meantime, please read the book, no bad parts by Richard Schwartz, check out the podcast or other uh, resources that, uh, Corey will give me that I'll put in the show notes. And I'm I'm only asking that you have an open mind and sit with the concept long enough to, to really see if this is meaningful to you. And my hunch is that essentially everyone who takes this seriously gets really significant use out of it. Yeah. Um, I know we're all different. So it may show up differently for people, but this doesn't feel like, oh, they, oh this practice works for 15% of patients. It, mm-hmm. it seems as though this sort of therapy is beneficial to essentially everyone. Yeah. 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 Do you want to, I, I will, I want to do whatever works for you time-wise, but I just made a few notes of a few Please. Um, Let's do it. things like, that I com- I regularly see in my office as I work with people who are processing faith transition stuff. And maybe we could just talk for a minute about how IFS might apply to it. So um, one, one, so the, the couple things that I made, made a note of um, setting boundaries and sexuality. So I was thinking we could like chat about those for a second. Please. So let's, let's just go with, that idea of setting boundaries. So what I, what I see so often is um, someone will um, say they're stepping away from the LDS church and and they have family who are uh, maybe being a little too intrusive or enmeshed and they have a hard time 
setting and enforcing boundaries because they haven't really had to do that before. So I was thinking maybe me and you could talk about how, like what parts might be showing up there. And of course everyone's different, but I don't know, like, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts too, but what I think maybe um, when someone is having a hard time setting boundaries, I'm, I often see there's, there's a part of them that um, is frustrated that boundaries either, either they're setting boundaries and they're not being respected or they're frustrated because they know they need boundaries and don't even know how to set them. So there's that like angry, frustrated part of themselves. Mm. Um, I see a part that desperately does not want to set boundaries because they're scared of the repercussions from that. And it, and are the people who should love them the most going to cut them out of their lives? Like yeah. that is a legitimate fear. And, and that does happen sometimes. Like it, it makes sense they have that part of them that's nervous so um what other parts do you think might be coming into play for for someone looking at boundary issues well i think you hit on the two big ones so i i you know maybe you picked this because this also is something i deal with but i don't have a a very healthy relationship with my dad or my father-in-law at the moment because both of them seem to be from a generation where they think they can, they just have a right to cross boundaries yeah. as, as the parental figure. Right. And that there's sort of a, a lack of being aware that you, you might be my dad, but I'm also a 44 year old grown man. Right. Right. And so these, you know, these, this topic hits kind of close to home and those two are the fears that I have. I, uh, one is that in setting boundaries, there's a part of me that is frustrated that somebody can't give me the common decency that I would easily give to my own children. Mm -hmm. There's a part of me that is pissed that in setting boundaries, people in some weird way, people would rather choose to disconnect from you, even though it's a parent child relationship Yeah, rather than, be accountable and talk through things that are being criticized about how they're handling the relationship. Mm -hmm. um, those two are huge. You're asking me to think of other ones. Um, and, and maybe those are the ones that stand out. I mean, they are, I mean, I mean, there's other little things like I, I'm pissed. Uh, there's a part of me that's pissed that uh, somebody doesn't have the capacity Um to engage or, or mm -hmm. to talk it out. Like, and, and again, mm -hmm. maybe that goes back to sort of the same thing. Um, but those are big ones. Like, those are the yeah. ones that are pressing in this sort of situation. Okay. So then let's just kind of like bounce off of those. So that idea of asking that those parts, like, how are you trying to protect me? And, and if you frame it like that, it, I mean, it seems obvious, like people, like mm. th those parts are trying to protect them because they don't, they don't want to lose those relationships, yeah. but also they, I mean, there, it, it, there's fear, they're fear-based and, and, um, and then, yeah, like you said, just that idea of people not respecting boundaries. And um, so the next question, what are you, what are you afraid would happen if you stopped doing what you're doing? 
that also seems obvious. Like if I if I stop um if I stop trying to set boundaries, I'm just gonna I'm I'm gonna get walked all over. They're it's they're not they're not gonna respect me. Um I don't know. Any other thoughts on that one? Yeah. There's also the chance that if you let people walk on you once, that they're going to walk on you over and over again. Yep. There's also, there's a part of me that needs the other person to grasp that they hurt me. Yeah. That you, that, that you don't get to misuse the human connection you have with others in order to fix them or correct their life. Again, I don't want to get into a long story in any one of these facets, but there's a, there's definitely a part of me that wants the other person to be accountable. Sure. Um, And that if, and if that part doesn't do its job, if that part isn't there, what is it protecting me from? Um, And what would happen if it stopped protecting me? Uh, It seems to be, protecting me from being abused over and over. Okay. And it, and it seems that if I, if I, if I let it stop, if I said, you know, you don't need to do that, what would happen? Mm-hmm. Um, my fear is that people who think they somehow have a parental right to simply lord over you for the rest of your life and to, have shared spaces be to their benefit without mutual respect, then then I'm going to find myself in these kinds of situations often. And to go, to go deeper, I'm going to have to put masks on. I'm going to have to pretend to be something. So mm-hmm. I, I think, I think on some level, the, the manager's, or firefighters that are trying to create the boundaries or accountability or demanding accountability. I, I think on some level um, they're trying to protect that part of me that wants to be seen and wants to be authentic. And um, if, if I didn't, if I wasn't protected by it, then I, parts of me feel like I would have to just compromise myself continually have to mm-hmm. always wear a mask and let, let you know the parent or the parent-in-law just uh, have a higher degree of privilege in a shared space. Yeah, um, does that make sense? Yeah, and when you say it like that, I just see so much value in what that part is trying to do. Like, I yeah. feel I feel compassion for that part. Like, it really is trying to help. It it's trying to keep you safe. So, um when you when you notice these parts speaking up that then let's look at like what what when you notice that what are those things trying to tell you that maybe they keep piping up because maybe you're you're not listening to this message does anything come to mind yeah and this may be a part of me that's healthier because the way we're framing this is generally when you go to work on your managers and your firefighters you're working on ego parts that have created buffers, uh, layers of distance, um, mechanisms that might be hurting others or preventing you from growth. In this particular situation, again, I'm sure there are parts if I sat here long enough and we we went into them, 
but there are parts here that are healthy. Like they're standing up for me when I used to be the kind of person who would let anyone get away with anything. Yeah. Right. And um, walking the line of what is a healthy way to enforce boundaries with people you love is a really complex conversation because we're inevitably not doing it perfectly. And we inevitably have a complete right to be doing it mm -hmm. um, because people are not respectful about the reason we have boundaries is because people don't respect boundaries, right? Right. They can't figure it out on their own. Um, so there are parts here now that, that demand that I stand up for myself when mm -hmm. I spent a lifetime of not standing up for myself. Yeah. And, and I can go back easy to those parts and go, you know, why in that earlier moment, did you not stand up? Well, it was, I want to fit in. I want to be accepted. I want to be approved of. I want to not ruffle any feathers. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to mess up someone else's day. I don't want to draw attention to something that maybe everyone will think is no big deal anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Yep. So, yeah. you know, these parts are trying to teach me that you're a healthier human being if you stand up for yourself. Great point. Yeah. And so where you could go from there is like acknowledging the 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 value of what they're doing and then to look at okay can i accomplish that same thing setting boundaries setting and enforcing boundaries from that authentic self from the seas and so think of it that think, think of it this way approaching setting and enforcing boundaries with calmness curiosity clarity compassion confidence courage creativity, connectedness. It's, it's like completely different setting and enforcing boundaries from that perspective versus setting and enforcing boundaries from the perspective of, um, I don't know, from wounds. Wounds, fear, shame. Fear, yeah, shame, all you know, of that. I think, yeah, I mean, lots of reasons we set boundaries is because somebody's hurt us in some way. And almost all hurt, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but almost all hurt and trauma is based in shame or fear. It's yeah. the embarrassment of not being like others in a way that you're acceptable. And it's fear, right? Like we've been these creatures of survival for hundreds of thousands of years, if not longer. And anything that feels threatening to us is scary. Even though we live in a world today where most of us humans don't have any real day-to-day -day fear of being annihilated or killed or whatever. Yeah. Yet our bodies respond to the mundane of daily life as if a bear just came out of the woods. Exactly. So let's jump to that last question. So as we're thinking about those parts that come up when you're thinking about boundaries, do you get a sense of what those parts or that part needs from you right now? Yeah, those parts, um, those parts, what they need from me uh, is again, it's, it's going back to the actual setting up of boundaries and having consequences for people trampling over me because 
those parts have convinced me as a whole that being uh, authentic and being um, taking my own well-being as important as whatever the other person's trying to achieve in their behavior mm-hmm. as necessary for me to live a, a healthy second half of life, right? And, and so these parts, they are, they are, they don't want to deal with all the bullshit that's happened at an earlier point when boundaries weren't in place. And so they are adamant that boundaries be in place, even, even if not always done the right way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. So, and and obviously we're just like scratching the surface with all of this, but I think, again, it's, I think it's helpful to look at with specific examples. So another, the other one that I had on my list that I regularly see is um, struggles with sexuality. So, so we're, we're taught our whole lives. Um, sex is bad. Don't, don't think about it. Don't do any, like, don't do anything. And then you get married and then it's okay. And, and so um, I have people come in and they're like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to navigate this. Like part of me wants to enjoy this. And I think it's, I think I'm supposed to. And then I don't know, like I, part of me just has like guilt and shame connected to it. So, and, and those are just a couple parts. There's, there's so many others that can get weaved into that. I mean, maybe part of them feels, um, uh, I don't know, like, um, like they're not, they're not fulfilling their role as a spouse. If they, if they're not, able to get past that block. Um, maybe part of them is feeling anger that this thing that was supposed to be something to seek feels scary or traumatic or whatever, based on the way they were raised. So there's all these different parts that can go into one thing. So there's, and, and, and those different parts can be polar opposites and there's truth to all of them. Like multiple truths can exist in the same, in the same thing. Like, yes, I want to like this. No, I don't. Cause it, I still have guilt connected to it. And um, examining like the questions there, like, how are you trying to protect me? Well, of course, the, of course that guilt is trying to protect you because that part came into play many, many years earlier. And the guilt was like, of course, trying to keep you from doing something that would land you in the Bishop's office. So it, it's obvious how it's trying to protect you. And um, I mean, the, the same stuff, like, what are you trying to tell me? Well, that could be a lot of things. Um, maybe it's trying to tell you that you need to love and accept your body. Maybe it's, maybe mm-hmm. it's telling you um, I, I, I need to, I need to get some more education about sexuality um, it, I mean, it could be anything. And, and so often what that part needs from you is just compassion. Like, like instead of trying to push it away or ignore it or pretend it isn't there, like get to understand it, get to know it, listen, it, it, it it's just compassion. 
Yeah. When I think of the, the sexuality component, and I, and I think to some degree, most of us have some level of wanting our sexuality to include things that we feel too much shame or fear to really take on, right? And so the the parts of my sexuality that are that the managers and the firefighters that they uh, communicate to me that those aren't welcomed, for instance. Yeah, it all hinges in you you know body image. So there's the idea that if if you got comfortable with your body, there's still the f- problem of whether other people around you are comfortable with your body, right? Right. And so I was the kid who threw the t-shirt on that went into the pool all the time. I was, you know, mm-hmm. 12 to 16 years old. Anytime I went to a pool, I had a t-shirt on. And and you don't realize it, you're you're actually drawing more attention to yourself because you no longer look like everyone else who's at the pool. Mm-hmm. But your managers and firefighters tell you to throw the damn shirt on. Otherwise, kids are going to think you're, you know, overweight or ugly or whatever, you know, whatever the stories are. Sure. So, so our managers and firefighters, you know, what are they trying to protect me from? They're trying to protect me from being laughed at or feeling shame or being embarrassed. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, what would happen if they stopped protecting me in your mind? The, the issue is that, oh, if I, if they stop protecting me, then I will feel that shame and embarrassment. I'll be laughed at. Yeah. But we also get to a point where you begin to realize that you could never make everyone happy anyway about who you are. And, and generally speaking, once you exit the stage of kids being bullies and their own insecurities and why they do that, when you enter the adult world, that sort of, again, not always, but sort of goes away. Like people, if you're, if you have a decent amount of, a decent group of people around you, nobody's looking to judge you or, or offend you that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I just, you're, you're hundred percent right. Like whether we, whether people find themselves not having the sexuality they want in their world, there is always going to be things going on uh, inside a person that dissuade us from doing all the things that even healthy, like, again, I'm not saying you're, I want to go out and do something unhealthy, like the healthy expression of my sexuality. There are parts of me that tell me to steer clear of doing that because, um, because to do so would disrupt other people too bad or mm-hmm. to do so would have others think you're a creeper, right? If you, if, if somehow what turns you on or the way, you know, whether you watch porn or whether you touch yourself, like all these things in, in our lives, especially coming from the system we did are things that you really have to spend some emotional capital sorting out. And yet if, if you let the managers and firefighters rule you, then you will go the rest of your life sacrificing really important pieces of yourself and not getting the contentment or fulfillment or well-being that you deserve. Yeah, exactly. Um, any other thoughts there on the sexuality one? Um, no, I think I, I typically see that yeah. more with women where it, it's, I think those messages are just even more deeply ingrained and um i again i just feel a lot of empathy like i I think i think that's an issue that 
can be worked through, but it often, often there's a lot of parts involved there that we need to like figure out how to make, make them all work together. Yeah. And, and just to note folks, if you happen to be in Southern Utah, Corey Reese is a therapist down here and you're, again, you said this, but your focus is primarily helping folks in a sort of faith transition, trying to process what happened to them and trying to help them have the tools uh, to kind of reconstruct or, or lean into a, a healthy second half of life. And, you know, as you're pointing to this therapy, I mean, the, the two things that people come in with all the time is that a repressed sexuality or a false expectation of what reality was around sexuality, because mm -hmm. all of our beliefs are distorted by high demand fundamentalist religious systems. And then, uh, this idea that once somebody does differentiate from their tribe, that there are people who s seem clueless to respecting that person's individuality and then tries to essentially create their own unhealthy boundaries or cross the healthy ones that the other person sets. Mm -hmm. And those seem like really big things. But folks, if you're in Southern Utah and the, uh, you know, this conversation today on any facet was interesting to you. I would suggest reaching out to, to Corey Reese. There's lots of good therapists down here, but you're absolutely one of them. Um, anything else we need to touch on here in regards to IFS? That's, you know, anything else in your notes that you thought we should spend a few minutes kind of hitting on? Uh, I guess I would just say in closing, just, just to reiterate one more time that, if if any of it feels confusing, just just keep listening. I mean, with with the book, some parts are like, okay, this is heavy, mm -hmm. this is a lot. Don't don't get lost in the definitions or the um, the structure of it. I think for some people, it helps to just break it down to really bare bones stuff, and that that is totally fine too. I have part of me that's thinking this, but the other part's thinking this. Perfect. Yeah. And then to give those those parts a chance to tell you why they do what they do. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, no Bad Parts by uh, Richard Schwartz. Uh, again, Corey will send us some, uh, some podcasts and other resources. We'll put those in the show notes. And uh, folks, I, I just would, I couldn't suggest highly enough. Again, I'm only going to appointment number two here in an hour. Uh, but appointment number one was with my therapist was so uh, insightful that I am... I'm really confident about some of the work that's going to happen over the next few months. And uh, we'll get back together and kind of report on that and try to model a few conversations. But in the meantime, my hope is that this audience will uh, take a little time to get familiar with this. Cause I think every one of us needs therapy. Every one of us should be engaged in inner work. And uh, I think this is a great uh, way to kind of fuse those two things together and, um, but anyway, uh, anything else? Uh, otherwise, uh, I'll kind of conclude I, the show. And I remember actually, uh, it, I can't remember how many years ago this was, but I remember my very first therapy appointment. No, yeah, yeah, it was after my very first therapy appointment. Um, we happened to be over at your house that night with a group of people, and I don't know how this even came up because I was it's so silly. Like I'm a therapist. I'm a mental health professional. 
And yet I still sometimes get locked in a little bit of that stigma of the mental health stuff, which is crazy. Um, Cause I definitely don't feel that toward anyone else. Hello. I'm, I do this for work, but I felt it toward myself and almost like I had something to be embarrassed or ashamed of. And somehow it came up that I mentioned that I had gone to therapy that day. And I just remember feeling palpable weight taken off my shoulders just by putting it out there and, and feeling the support from everyone. And now, like you said, to, to just look around and, and I mean, the vast majority of people are either <laughs> in therapy or have been recently. And it's so awesome to just have that vulnerability and connection where, I mean, at some point, it's almost like you don't even need group therapy. We're, we're all each other's therapists and, and there's no shame or um, lack of, I mean, there's, it's just all connection. And I, I'm just grateful for the space that we're in where we can, we can put stuff out there and, and ask for help if needed. We can call people on stuff when we notice it. And I'm open, like people call, I just love it all. It, it, this is, this is a better second half. Yeah. And I'll say too, you know, my wife and I were in marriage therapy and some, some modalities of therapy um, I, I really don't think they get certain, they don't get the results that you would think you'd get going to see a therapist. For instance, I think marriage therapy is uh, at the general level is sort of a broken thing where people come in and they talk and you, you try to empower them, but in some ways they sort of get trapped in, uh, the same things hurting them over and over again. And there doesn't seem to be any way out. Yeah. Um, certain things seem to be working. IFS seems to be working. The EMDR seems to be working. The uh, recent advance advancements with uh, conscious altering tools as a part of a therapeutic practice seem to be working, whether it's again, you know, psychedelics like mushrooms being used to treat depression. Um, I think we're seeing the world shift and we're beginning to figure out like, Oh, like let's just completely go off what works in terms of data-based results. And, and so you're seeing what used to be, uh, for instance, a war on drugs turn into uh, there being ketamine therapies available in Utah. Yeah. Um, you know, psychedelics are being uh, okayed in various places. Yep. Uh, and I think that under the uh, process of therapy, th these things become incredible tools and IFS is one of those. And so folks, I hope that you'll, you'll take an interest in it and, and, uh, if you need a therapist, you know, you need a therapist, you need therapy, you, you, you want to talk out some things in your life and try to come up with better ways to process that and to show up differently. I think IFS is a incredible tool to do that. And I, I don't think you're going to have any problem finding an IFS therapist. They're, they're all over now. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, cool. How can people find you? If there are folks listening, they're in Southern Utah, they're going through a difficult, a difficult faith transition. They want to they want to talk out some of this with somebody. Maybe they've got a mixed faith marriage or other things that make these things really difficult. And they, and they are, where can people find you? Um, brightwaytherapy.com is probably the easiest spot. And I, I can do telehealth stuff too, if people are in Northern Utah. So yeah, I'm happy to help if, if that's something people are, are interested in. And also, like I said before, some people need that extra 
space, some extra help with therapy, and not everyone does. And I mean, maybe you get into this book and you, you just are able to do the work and that's okay too. But if, if someone does, does need a little bit of extra support, I'd be happy to help. Yeah. Brightwaytherapy.com. Corey Reese. Um, awesome. I appreciate it, my friend. Again, just, we, we do have a great group down here where folks can really be honest about their life. Yeah. Uh, and it feels almost like therapy sitting around with friends and talking, Totally. Uh, but not everybody has access to that. And so yep. folks, if you, if you need help, you should get it. And, uh, no one, sh- no one should feel shame. I hope we get to a day where our country automatically provides every human being access to therapy with no shame at all. Me too. Uh, Cause I think every human being should have access to a therapist and good therapy. Yep. I Thank agree. you, Corey. All right. Thank I'm going to see I'll you. End the episode. Yeah. Yeah. You as well. End the episode and uh, uh, have an excellent day and we'll put the resources in the, in the show notes folks. Hope you enjoyed today. And I hope you spend some time uh, learning about uh, internal family systems. Thanks. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation,